The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of a lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Wings Over Australia segment, James Kitely. And we're here with Terry Hetherington of the Fleet Air Arm Museum at Nowra. Hi, Terry. G'day, Dave. G'day, James. Great to have you here on this windy Nowra day. <laughs> Very windy, yeah. That's yeah. no, uh, it's worse than tomorrow. I mean, holy hell. <laughs> Yeah. So can you give us a little bit of a background on the, the museum and the collection and how it came about? And Certainly, Dave, yeah. We celebrated the 40th anniversary of the collection just over 12 months ago. Um, the then captain of the base, who was at that stage Captain Andrew Robertson, um, saw all these old aeroplanes outside offices and outside hangars and 
knew of collections of bits and pieces and he said we need to do something about creating a proper museum and a collection. So with his influences to see over the base, he assigned one of the old World War II Bellman hangars as the uh, museum. Um, he was walking through the paint shop one day and he saw a one-eighth scale model of a Hawker Sea Fury. And he said, uh, I need to talk to the sailor who owns that Sea Fury. So leading seaman Glenn Doray fronted up to the captain's office with his shiny shoes and his best cap. And Captain Robertson said, you're going to be the first curator of the Fleet Air Arm Museum. <laughs> what a great story. And Glenn said, yes, sir. <laughs> As you do. So Glenn was the person who uh, helped set up the museum in what was D Hangar, one of the World War II hangars on the base. And there was a Gannet, there was a Tiger Moth, there was a Sycamore. At that stage, a Firefly and a Sea Fury were gate guards at the front of the museum. So they were hauled down into the hangar as well. And then a museum officer was appointed, which was really a supplementary duty for whatever else they did, whether they were aircrew or instructors or whatever, but uh, the museum officer was appointed working, probably working for leading Seaman Dore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and the, the collection grew. We had a um, hangar fire two years after the museum was first set up, and of course the old World War II hangar, they had to then be pressed back into service for current operational aeroplanes, for the tracker squadrons. So um, the collection was then put out in the weather again, but some old World War II buildings were sort of moved around and made available as uh, storage space or display space for some of the artefacts, but but still, the aircraft were back out in the weather. And then, early 80s, um, it was identified that the area where this current Fleet Air Arm Museum is constructed was a large concrete pad that simulated an aircraft carrier flight deck. It was right. called the dummy deck. Yep. Yep. And they said, oh, we've got the perfect foundation to build a museum. So all of the aircraft were then moved up here and placed on the dummy deck, albeit in the open. Yep. And the Army Reserve Engineers were called in to transport some of the buildings, big and small, uh, up to this location. And so we had aircraft out in the open, out in the weather, and buildings attached around the collection for administration and exhibition purposes. So that went on for probably nearly 10 years, and then a foundation was created whose role was to go out, knock on doors, to, to gain money and funding and support for the erection of the the museum building. Okay. So the state government, the local government, the, the Shoalhaven City Council contributed quite a significant amount of money. The state government uh, provides support through their public works department as it was in those days with architectural work and design work and, and um, concept plans. And then by this stage Captain Robertson from 1974 was Rear Admiral Robertson, who had lots of influence. Yes, yep. And uh, he and all of his um, members of the Capital Campaign Fund went knocking on doors to the Westpac banks and the, and the BHPs and, and the Westfields and all of those large organisations that 
thought that this was a worthwhile activity to become involved with and quite a significant amount of money was raised to then start construction. So in 91, the, the foundation stone was laid and the building was really just a framework, a skeleton with a roof. And as more money was raised through the capital campaign funding and through uh, regular air shows that we were conducting here, we were able to go to stage two and then stage three and eventually stage five saw the whole building enclosed with a gift shop, with yep. a restaurant and function centre, administration offices. And um, that was, I would say, late 1990s, 98, 99. Then when the Federation uh, Centenary came about, the federal government supported the Museum Foundation with some money to build this annex that we're in now, which right. is the administration, the archive and the, and the art galleries. And it was federation funding, so you could virtually say this, is, this was stage six of right. the development, yeah. and that's, that's where we've come to now with the building. It's really interesting that you said it was only about 40 years ago that um, the whole idea of a museum came along, but... Uh, the Fleet Air Arm hasn't actually been around much longer than that, has it? Well, in 1974, we'd been in existence for uh, 26 years yeah, so at that stage. That's yeah. actually a young service to yes. then suddenly go, we need to start preserving. So yeah. that's, that's actually yeah. really good compared to most other services that normally have gone for 50 years before they start thinking about it. So. Yes, yeah. Uh, I mean, the foresight that Admiral Robertson had was, was wonderful. Um, and the amount of uh, influence that he had over other people to get them involved uh, speaks volumes. And that's why the art gallery downstairs is named in his honour. Right. Well, yeah. that's, that's very appropriate, isn't mm. it? I think just for our listeners who, who can't see uh, on that wonderful radio-type setup, um, it's an amazing uh, facility you have here. It's a very large building. It's a clear-span building. You've got a, a raised walkway down the middle so you can see the aircraft from above as well as um, at ground level. Um, and you've got a, a very well-displayed um, selection of aircraft uh, illustrating the history of the, of the uh, Royal Australian Navy Fleet Air Arm. And I'm, I'm reminded of, obviously, your sister museums in Yeovilton mm. in the UK and at uh, HMCS Shearwater in Canada. But very, very impressive. We've all commenta- commented here uh, today how um, well presented it is and also you know, makes for great photographs. Really, really lovely to see the aircraft and be able to, to, to see them so well. So do check on the website for the photos we'll be putting up to go with this. Um, but it's a challenging facility to maintain and manage, I should imagine. There's a fair amount of work. and Well, today with this windy day, it's, yes. it's a lot of challenges. Yes. Um, perhaps jumping a bit backwards... Uh, Tell people who may not be familiar about the history of the Royal Australian Navy's fleet air arm because mm. uh, it's a little different to, say, what New Zealand's had and there's a parallel with Canada, I understand, but different from Britain with the, yes. the, theirs. So, yeah. yeah. It's, if you go back to the origins of the, the RAAF with um, Dickie yeah. Williams. Yeah. Dickie Williams was originally a uh, Australian Flying Corps pilot. Yeah. Um, his uh, colleague, if you like, Stanley Gable, um, was an Australian from Melbourne who took himself to England, learned how to fly in England and become a Royal Naval Air Service pilot. And both of them were then seconded back to Australia to create the Royal Australian, help create the Royal Australian Air Force. 
So yeah, on the one hand, you had this man who originally joined the army, was one of the first graduates, aircrew graduates from Point Cook, flew with the AFC. On the other hand, you had this gentleman from Melbourne who had taken himself to England, flown Sopwiths on the Western Front, as the Royal Naval Air Service squadrons were doing, but had a passion and an interest in naval aviation. But they then both came together to uh, answer the government's call to set up the Royal Australian Air Force. And whilst Goebel saw the benefit in having naval aviation, Dickie Williams was totally opposed. He thought that the RAAF should be the sole operator of aircraft in Australia. So in the early 20s, um, it was agreed by the government that there would be several aircraft acquired, float planes, that would become the core of the, uh, the flying element for the Royal Australian Navy. And they were designated ANA aircraft, ANA 1 through 6, I think it was, SOP with babies. Yeah, and then, and then later Ferry 3Fs. Ferry 3Ds, yeah. 3Ds. Yeah. 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 Um, that only lasted a short while until they were then transferred back under RAAF control. But those aircraft were what was really the genesis of the, uh, the Australian fleet air arm. And I remind everybody, and if they're not aware, that the term fleet air arm was originated in the Royal Air Force. Yes. Mm. The yeah, Royal Air Force true. was flying aeroplanes off British naval carriers between wars, and uh, they were the fleet air arm of the RAF. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until, just pr prior to World War II, that uh, the Royal Navy started training their pilots, observers, engineers, uh, air crewmen to take over that role. And even when you say that, um, in the early part of the war, most of the training was RAF instructors, Royal, Royal Canadian Air Force instructors, and from 1941, US Navy instructors yes. um, taking those guys through. So mm. uh, it was under the Royal Navy system, but they just didn't have enough guys. And, and uh, you know, they started the war as the poor service, really, didn't they? They did, but very much so. So all through the 20s and into the 30s and 40s, selected naval officers who, who were otherwise seamen specialists, we've had one paymaster officer who got qualified as an aircrew, um, they were otherwise seamen specialists, were allowed to either fly with the Air Force, uh, flying, flying boats or seaplanes right. uh, off Australian ships, or fly as observers or navigators in those aircraft. And then they were expected to come back after having done th two, three or four years with the RWF back into their other role because that was their principal, principal role. To pick up a little bit there and sort of touch on our politics, um, one of the reasons for having an independent air force is always it's about how much you carve up the limited cake of, of government funding and resource, hence the fight between, you know, as we ju you just touched on, who gets to have the aeroplanes. Um, but also that would have cramped your career if you took three or four years out flying aircraft mm. from your standard naval career, then you would be behind your peers on your year. Yes. Um, so you'd have to really, really want to fly those aircraft. Um, yes. Um, jumping forward a bit, um, the uh, uh, Royal Australian Navy ships, the, the cruisers, uh, Sydney, Perth and so on, uh, had uh, RAAF uh, Seagull 5s and later Walruses aboard with, right. with Royal Australian Air Force Air crew and who were the uh, we were having a discussion later and who were the actual uh, maintainers on those were they they were, they were RAAF maintainers they were okay uh, yep. sometimes there would be a naval observer most times yeah there would be a naval observer flying in those because they were they would be 
they would be there as a naval observer. To, the primary role of the Walrus and Seagull was as to fall, shot, fall of shot between, would, um, yes. between the two fleets that are engaging. Yes. It happened a couple of times. Battle of Cape Spartavento is one I remember, mm-hmm. and I think one other. Um, but generally, it didn't work out as the pre-war planners expected. They had radar kicked in. So, yeah. very odd situation. The, the Royal Navy had their own walruses on their ships, operated by naval and officers, on too. and on the New Zealand, yes, uh, New right. Zealand Navy ships. But, they, but they were maintained by Royal New Zealand Air Force on on, yes. on the New Zealand ships with Royal Navy crews. So, yes. Yeah. If, you, if anybody who's listening isn't keeping up, this isn't a test. It's pretty challenging <laughs> to get the comparisons all right. But it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. So during World War Two, there was a naval air arm, but it was operated by the Royal Australian Air Force for the Navy, wasn't it? Indeed, yes. Um, the, the Air Force had full control over which aircraft went onto which ship and which air crew um, were assigned to the ships. And we have an honour roll in the museum which uh, commemorates the names of all of those air crew who lost their lives serving on Australian Navy ships. And that was a number too, wasn't it? Quite a number, yeah. quite a significant. HMAS Sydney, when it was lost, uh, there were six RAAF personnel lost with Sydney, HMAS Perth. There were a couple of uh, personnel, RWF personnel, uh, lost on HMAS Australia, even though Australia suffered several kamikaze attacks, it did survive the war. Yeah. Um, and the other ships as well, the, uh, the armed merchant cruisers and the, the other ships that carried aircraft. Just a little note there, one of the tragedies was there was a friendly fire instance in, in the Med- Mediterranean where a, a walrus was identified by um, um, some uh, allied pilots, I'll leave them unnamed for the moment, <laughs> as, as an enemy aircraft and shot down with, uh, I think, the loss of the crew in that case, mm. which is a tragedy as mm. well. But yeah, fair number. And then obviously that, that sort of takes us partly through the war and then on to the 19, late 40s and 50s. Because the Australian Navy had personnel assigned to the RN, to the Royal Navy, during World War II, and, and the most significant of those people was the then Lieutenant Commander Victor Smith. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd served on several Royal Naval carriers. Um, he spent most of his war years in England, came back to Australia on a couple of occasions, but he was the, he was the prime choice as the man for the Navy to choose and for the government to choose to write the Naval Aviation Plan. So he got sent back to England not long after World War II and his mission was to go and uh, write a plan for government to consider to establish a Royal Australian Navy fleet around with two carriers, five or six squadrons, two naval air stations, three or four hundred aeroplanes. This was the master plan. Of Sounds course. lovely, but someone's <laughs> going to have to pay for it, aren't they? Yes, That's always the challenge. Yes. Um, so, so we have several copies and the original of Victor Smith's naval plan in our archive and it makes fascinating reading down to the to the salary of Able Seaman blogs for one year as the tyre changer in the workshop on HMAS Sydney and, and that sort of level of yeah. detail that, that was gone into. So July 1947, government accepted the report and we, we more or less consider that, I think it was the 3rd or 4th of July 1947, as the date that the Royal Australian Navy Fleet Air Arm came into existence. Right. From early 48, Navy started to recruit personnel from outside and from within the Navy, requesting people to transfer or to engage in um, the Fleet Air Arm as engineers, maintainers, stores people uh, and aircrew. They were very cagey in, in 1945, at the end of the war, nearing the end of the war. Um, they even approached quite a few RAAF veterans. Yep. The war hadn't finished, and they were starting to recruit 
these right. RAAF people and <laughs> induct them into the Royal Naval Voluntary Reserve yep. because yep. the Royal Naval Squadrons were still operating in Australia, yep. places like Schofields and Bankstown. They were doing carrier training before the war ended with the Royal Navy. Then they sent them over to England to do more carrier qualifications and then about 47 or so they said, come home fellas, yep. you're the... You're the um, you're the, going to be the people who are setting up the fleet era. A glorious future awaits you. <laughs> Glory, yes, it it yeah. would be a very interesting challenge because, of course, the, the World War Two had ended, but there was clearly um, the Iron Curtain had come down and, and Australia being able to project um, power over the horizon in, in a blue water navy. Mm. This, was, this was the way you had to be able to tackle submarines. Nuclear power was coming on the yes. scene. It's easy to forget all this stuff, isn't it? Um, and, so, and the Canadians were doing exactly the same thing, isn't it? Mm. It's interesting that it's one of those areas where Canada's... Canada parallels Australia almost exactly. Yes, they were setting up for same reasons, um, less coast than us, more um, more Arctic <laughs> work there. But right. they were looking yeah. at the same kinds of aircraft. What sort of aircraft did we start off with? We started off we we were very very traditionally tied to Britain's yeah um, apron strings. Um, we ordered two aircraft carriers. They were both in build during World War Two. At the end yeah. of the war, construction was suspended. Um, one was HMS Terrible, very appropriate name, having served in that ship, which became HMS Sydney. Uh-huh. <laughs> and the other was HMS Majestic, which became HMS Melbourne. Yeah. So Sydney was finished first, but we're in that era where there was a massive development in the technology and the infrastructure within the ships to improve the safety of naval aviation. So it was decided to delay construction or delivery of Melbourne to incorporate things like the mirror landing gear and the steam catapult and the angled angled flight deck. So Sydney was pressed into service in uh, late 1948. A lot of crew who were going to form Sydney's uh, ship's company sailed across to England in uh, civilian passenger liners must have been a luxurious time for them. <laughs> yes, enjoy this, will never happen yes, again, Yeah, chaps. that's right. Um, I go back to, to talking about Sir Victor Smith. He was then sent over to England in, the, in that era, 47, 48, to start recruiting from the Royal Navy as well. Right. And in addition to that, there were a lot of Royal Navy personnel approached to go on loan to the RAM, to, to the fleet RAM. So when Sydney came back, it had either people who transferred from the RN, Yep. people who were on loan from the RN or people who were new recruits or had transferred from within other categories within the RAN as the ship's company. And that's not just the aviation branch, but it's the whole of the ship's company. So Sydney was uh, equipped with two squadrons and the, the squadrons were a Sea Fury squadron, 805 squadron, and a Firefly squadron, 817 squadron. As a um, prelude to returning to Australia, all of the aircrew and the engineers had been sent to England early to, to do training on the Royal Navy aircraft uh, with the Royal Navy squadrons. And the two squadrons were commissioned two days, sorry, three days before the air station here at Nowra was commissioned. Right. So the aircrew had been flying these aeroplanes um, that belonged to the other squadrons. The manufacturers delivered the aircraft to whichever Royal Naval Air Station the squadrons were located and they said, on this date, 28th of August 1948, we have now created 805 and 817 Squadron. Three days later, 
the air station here, which was operated uh, as a RAAF base, and then a Royal Naval Air Station during World War II, was also commissioned as HMAS Albatross. Right. The first of the two planned air stations. Right. So we had two squadrons, uh, which comprised about 24 aircraft, 12 each, yeah. on the operation squadrons. The purchase, the initial purchase, I think, in the order of about 36 or 40 odd of each type. So there were additional aircraft transported back to Australia on board HMAS Sydney when it returned in uh, May 1949. And then everything started in earnest here at Albatross. And then Korea. And then Korea, we, uh, we were just sort of getting, uh, getting used to flying from a hard deck here at Nara and flying off the, uh, off the carrier. And we got involved in October 1951. Our other surface ships had been involved from the very beginning of the Korean War. Um, and the RAAF squadrons had been stationed in Japan anyway, so they yeah. were pressed into activity as soon as the, uh, the, uh, the hot things started to happen. But uh, October 1951, um, it will be 65 years, October in, in 2016, that our squadrons set off with HMAS Sydney. Uh, in the meantime, Sydney had been back to England a second time to collect more aircraft and two other commissioned squadrons. Right. Yeah. And there were other base squadrons established here at, at Albatross. Uh, we had Wiraways, we had Dakotas, we yeah. had Tiger Moths and all of those other... Building up an infrastructure, really. Building up an infrastructure and, and building up a, a training regime uh, and a regime that prepared the people to go, go to sea in the ships okay. or in, in the carrier. In the meantime, um, work was continuing on HMAS Melbourne and it was not until 1956 that Melbourne came in and introduced the jet age right. into the fleet air arm with the gannets and the venoms. But uh, just jumping ahead a little bit, going back to Australia's involvement in Korea, Sydney went up on two occasions. Uh, once from October 51 through to late January 52, uh, relieving British carriers. And then after the armistice was signed, Sydney went up a, a second time and uh, did patrols on both the east and west coast of Korea. Right. But it was all sort of, you know, milk run stuff, basically, yeah. just keeping the boys quiet, you know. Now, that, um, downstairs I noticed there's a plaque that says Korea, 1950 to 56. Is yes. that covering the peacetime? It, it does, yeah. Right. Um, right. The, um, the Department of Veterans Affairs and the other organisations that determine active service have determined that through that period, right through to 56, tri-service personnel, Army, Navy and Air Force personnel, but particularly Army and Air Force personnel who remained in Korea were still considered to be providing active service right, okay. up until that time, yeah. Okay. Another question I've got about um, the, the fleet air arm in Korea, what sort of operations were they doing? They were doing ground attack, principally. Um, the the funny, uh, funny story is that 817 Squadron was assigned as the first Firefly Squadron to go to Korea. There were two Sea Fury Squadrons, uh, 805 and 808, an 817 squadron, but at the time they were told they were going to Korea, they were operating anti-submarine patrol aircraft that had no 
offensive armament. Right. They were there to drop depth charges and, and detect submarines. So what they did, they changed out their aircraft with 816, who were still operating the, um, the Mark V Firefly, right. uh, in lieu of the Mark VI that they, they had progressed into. Yep. Um, and with most of the Firefly types, it took a day to convert it from a fighter reconnaissance to an anti-submarine to a fighter bomber, right. whatever. Yep. You know, yep. That was the way the aeroplane was built and designed. Yep. Um, but to change it from a Mark V to a Mark VI, no. If you're going to go there shooting 20 mil cannons, you needed a Mark V. Yeah, right. Um, That's an interesting point. I hadn't realised that. Yeah. You know, yeah, so they would have been equipped with four 20 millimetre cannon. Would they have rockets? They had rockets rockets and bombs. Yeah. So the, their main role was, was ground attack. And we've got fortunate, uh, we have in the archive, the squadron diaries with the daily log of every sortie and the debriefing records of every sortie that they were engaged in. And this is for all three squadrons that were in Korea. Um, and, and it makes fascinating reading. And, and they sort of do a, a weekly tally, you know, so many trains, so yep. many bridges destroyed, yeah. so many ox carts destroyed, <laughs> things like that, you know. <laughs> well, down, downstairs in, in the collection, you've got the the Firefly and the Sea uh, Fury sitting next mm -hmm. to a MiG-15. Yeah. Did, did the Australian um, aircraft see any air-to-air -air action against the MiGs? Or they never else? engaged any uh, any foreign aircraft, no. Uh, there were quite a few aircraft um, struck by ground fire. Right. Quite a few of our aircraft were uh, lost. There were three fatalities, all from 805 Squadron, from the Sea Fury Squadrons. Um, Two were as a result of ground fire. The other one, um, it is not known why the the aircraft crashed, but uh, and the uh, yeah the, the the circumstances around that particular incident are unclear to this day. Right. The aircraft flew into cloud, and then next thing, yeah, yeah that was gone. it. Yeah, yeah. So the next step is obviously the introduction of the jet age, which is a very mm. exciting uh, change. Well, actually, I wonder. Sorry, I, I do wonder. Was the helicopter age? between that and, and mm. the jet age? You've struck one of my favourite uh, subjects. Um, <laughs> when, when Sydney was in Korea, and when the British carriers were operating in Korea, the Americans were operating Sikorsky S-51 Dragonflies as search and rescue helicopters. So those American helicopters were assigned to what, whichever Commonwealth carrier, British or Australian, right. was on station. So they had um, several aircraft, uh, and I just was helicopter composite squadron one. HC one was the very first helicopter rescue squadron inaugurated in the uh, in the U.S. Navy. Right. And they've got a very proud history, and they they maintain a uh, sort of a group to this day. Yeah. Uh, yep. Which I subscribe to, and it's there was one incident where a uh, a firefly was shot down. Um, the crew survived. The crew went and hid in a ditch with their Owen gun and their yep. 38 Smith and Wesson or whatever it was, um, and they were being harassed by some people in blanket suits. <laughs> <laughs> um, and they, they were protect, protection was provided to them by Meteors initially, and then by um, Sea Furies, and then the helicopter, the U.S. Navy rescue helicopter from Sydney, uh, took off with about 20 minutes daylight left, uh, did a, a very long trip in the dusk into that zone where the two aircrew were still uh, maintaining their, um, 
their defence against the, um, the Chinese and the North Korean soldiers. Um, they went in there, the air crewmen jumped out, uh, dispatched a couple of the, uh, the North Koreans, the air crewmen, I should say, off the helicopter. Uh, the two pilots, the pilot and the observer out of the Firefly, jumped in the, um, the Dragonfly and off they went to the nearest um, US Air Force base because they were pretty low on gas. Yeah. Um, the pilot, uh, whose name escapes me for the minute, a chief petty officer, was awarded the uh, Navy Cross and the Distinguished Service Medal, I think, right. by, right. by the uh, Commonwealth. Right, two medals for the same action? Yes. That's an, an American medal oh. and, a, and a British medal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, which which yeah. makes sense given the, given the circumstances. And those stories are, I wouldn't say common, but there's several of those, mm. and, and indeed a film featuring Mickey Rooney in, in America, well, but unusual for Commonwealth service. If, if you look at that film and you read all of the reports about that particular incident where Neil McMillan and Phil Hancock's were shot down, it's almost the same story. Right, well there we go. That's yeah. fascinating. Yeah. A real highlight yeah. of our trip, that. Yeah, Except William Holden died in the film. <laughs> <laughs> Better that way round, I guess. Taff Hancock's and uh, Neil McMillan survived. Yeah. Oh, and and um, in 1980, um, the, the pilot, the chief petty officer of the Dragonfly came to Australia and we had a yep. reunion here in the mess. Oh, uh, uh, Neil McMillan had been killed, uh, unfortunately, uh, later on in the 50s flying helicopters, but uh, Taff Hancock's was still alive. He was the air crewman, and uh, the three of them got together. That's, that's a great story, really. It's one of the things that makes this trip fascinating. And, mm. Well, yeah, well, I was going on to the jet, uh, jet age, but just talk a little bit about the heli early days of the helicopter, because yeah. that's very important to the Navy now. Yes, it? Um, it is. When, when Sydney was first introduced, the search and rescue aircraft was... A sea otter. We, we acquired three sea otters, so whenever the ship deployed with the two or three squadrons, there was always at least one or two sea otters as the search and rescue aircraft. Right. When uh, Melbourne came with its squadrons, the Sycamore helicopter was introduced as the search and rescue helicopter. So in mid-50s, we started to introduce um, the Sycamore purely as a search and rescue helicopter. By the late 50s, early 60s, uh, the use of helicopters in anti-submarine work was becoming more and more common, and there was a team sent all around the world to, uh, to look at the best possible uh, system that the Australian Navy should operate. They chose a Sikorsky design, built by Westlands under licence in the UK with a gas turbine engine, which was the Westland Wessex. Yep the Mark 31A, and that was what introduced anti-submarine work, helicopter anti-submarine work, into the RAN in the, uh, the early 60s. I think the Sycamore is a, a beautiful-looking helicopter, but I think my impression is you could either have search or rescue. You couldn't really do two things. It didn't have much of a payload, did it? Uh, no, it didn't, no. Um, no. And uh, early, that was the big challenge with early helicopter ops, is they didn't have much lifting ability and, no. and were very vulnerable machines. Um, yes. Just to go back to the sea otter, because obviously as a, as a walrus specialist, I have a, a particular affection mm. for, the, for the sea otter, and you, uh, you hold the largest remaining chunk known of, of sea otter, don't you? And very proudly. Indeed, <laughs> yes. Sadly not on show at the moment, and my yeah. appeal goes in now. Please put that on show somewhere. But yes, um, but yes the, the helicopter age, which is really what where the Navy is down to today, isn't it? It it's is. Helicopters. It is, yeah. Melbourne served from 1955 through to 1981. Uh, we continued to fly fixed-wing aeroplanes up until uh, mid-'84. Uh, 
we, we had two Hawker Siddeley 748s, which continued on almost to the year 2000 right. as uh, electronic warfare training aircraft, but, but our seagoing fixed-wing squadrons were disbanded between 81 and 84. Uh, and from that time, even prior to the disbandment of the, um, the fixed-wing squadrons, we were sending small helicopters that weren't designed to go to sea we were sending them to sea on the back of frigates. Right. Uh, things like uh, Bell 206s. Right. And, right. and the squirrels. The, the squirrels yeah. uh, were introduced in the, uh, the mid-80s and Australia was then purchasing American ships. The, uh, the DDGs had come and gone. We were getting into the FFGs, the yeah. uh, Oliver Hazard Perry class, uh, which had a, two hangars, a flight deck on the stern of the ship. We didn't know what aircraft we were going to put on them, but we started with things like squirrels and Bell 206s and the like to, to start getting ready for the new generation of airborne anti-submarine using helicopters. Right. And uh, that progressed then into the Seahawk era. Right. I was going to say, there seems to be, to me, a very modern grey-painted helicopter down the back of this hangar, and I'm going, wow, that, that, they're still in service, aren't they? But no, time passes. So. And of course, in between was the Sea King, was it? Is that yes. Right? This, this, if you look at the lineage of um, naval anti-submarine helicopters, we had two Marks of the Wessex. In fact, the original aircraft were converted into the Mark 31 Bravo, yeah. uh, originally Mark 31 Alpha. Um, that was simply an improvement in the anti-submarine detection systems within the airframe. There was, wasn't a great deal of change to the airframe, although visually there were a couple of changes. Um, and the Wessex soldiered on through till the mid-70s um, when we introduced the, the Sea King. Once again, a Sikorsky design, but the aircraft that we bought was a Western production uh, with Rolls-Royce engines. So from 75 onwards, um, the Sea King eventually replaced the Wessex as the anti-submarine helicopter. We found an alternate role for the Wessex. It was a general cargo carrying, troop carrying. Right. It, it did a lot of things that to this day we, we can't talk about. Right, <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, painting helicopters all over black and flying with silent sticks attached to the undercarriage legs and things like that. Very um, interesting. Yeah, yeah. So the Wessex really was a workhorse right through till the end of its life in 89. But in that era between 80, uh, sorry, 75 through to 89 when the Sea Hawks came, the Sea King was the principal yeah. anti-submarine helicopter. Yeah. Um, then it then converted to a similar role as the Wessex when the Sea right. Hawks um, started to um, come online. The Sea King became a composite squadron uh, helicopter, multi-role, uh, troop carrying, cargo carrying, firefighting, flood relief, all of those fantastic things that you can do with a helicopter yeah. that you can't do with a fixed wing aeroplane. Bambi buckets and all that. One example was uh, being involved, I saw a very interesting photograph upstairs uh, of the Cyclone Tracy for those outside of Australia. Mm. Um, uh, it's Christmas Day, was it 1974? 1974, yes. Um, yeah. Where Cyclone Tracy basically took Darwin out. Um, mm. the, the city was wrecked and um, the Air Force came in and helped out and the Navy came in and helped out yes. and a lot of civil people as well came in and helped out. But mm. uh, that would have been a big operation. Yes, the, the ship's companies of, of Melbourne and the supply ships were called back to duty <laughs> Christmas afternoon. Right. Uh, the squadrons were called out on that day. 
Um, they, they principally wanted helicopters to yeah. go on board Melbourne uh, to provide the relief efforts. So I think it took four days to get everything together and Melbourne was out of Sydney Harbour with its escort ships and the uh, supply ships. And they formed the bakery, the power station, right. the water supply, because they had desalination plants on all the ships. They had large galleys on all the ships to you know, feed a 1,000 people. Um, and they had the helicopters that were sending people out there to try and help recover what the damage that had been caused by, by Cyclone Tracy. It wasn't a case of rebuilding at that stage. It was a case of just getting in there and cleaning the city up yeah. because the majority of the population had been evacuated. Um, Navy was sending up our Hawker Sidley 748s uh, and our Dakota. No, I don't think any Dakotas were up there. Air Force was sending up every transport aeroplane they had. Yeah. Quadras squo- squeezed, I don't know, 500 people into a 747. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, another amazing episode, really. Um, yes. So we, we, we nearly got to the jets earlier, but we, we need to come back to the start of the jet era then, so just mm. winding back a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, when you look at the longevity of aircraft these days in service, it's interesting to compare with how short the lifespan of a sea venom mm. or a gannet was, yeah. or a fury or a firefly for that matter. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, know, you mentioned about the Seahawk that's down there. That airplane's 26 years old, and it just came out of service. Yeah, but the Fury and the Firefly served from '48 through to '55. Yep. Some soldiered on to the mid '60s as target tugs, but the majority of them were on the scrap heap and being used as fire training wow. aeroplanes. Um, so Melbourne um, came into service with the Gannets and the Sea Venoms, uh, and we kept recycling squadron numbers. Yeah. as we do, um, and they were then equipped with the, the gannets and the, the sea venoms. Prior to the sea venoms coming into service, we acquired um, Australian-built and British-built vampire trainers. Right. So they were assigned to the training squadrons here at Nara, so that the aircrew had a feeling for what it was going to be like to fly in the, the slightly higher-powered sea venom in the vampires. Um, in the mid-60s... <clears throat> Both the ship and the aircraft were getting a bit aged, so it was decided to go out and do some research into what type of aircraft were available to get, to continue um, serving on Melbourne. Melbourne required a, a refit to uh, continue it on through to the early 80s. Um, in fact, there were a couple of instances where US Navy Skyhawks and US Navy trackers were invited <laughs> to try out our flight deck. Come on over. <laughs> and and I, I have photographs in the archive dated 1964 with a big red secret stamp. Ah, right. Of a Skyhawk landing on, on Melbourne or a tracker landing on Melbourne. Wow. Uh, so they were looking at it in 63, 64. Now, what would what our options be? So for those not aware of it, to, uh, a tracker onto that would be pretty challenging, but a Skyhawk into that deck would have been very challenging, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, with the high speed. Um, when we introduced our own Skyhawks, Melbourne's flight deck had to be fully reinforced. The yeah. catapult was upgraded, the arresting system was upgraded. Yeah. There were other modifications to uh, make it safer and more efficient it, to fly it, those high-performance 
aircraft, you're suddenly chucking an awful lot, long, lot more mass around in a slightly different way. And that yes. the, the spool up time on a jet means you have to be using that that angled deck with them hitting um, takeoff power as they go over the exactly. wire if they don't yes. catch the wire yes. and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So we we created a training squadron for the Skyhawks, um, and the training aircraft was supplemented by Vampires originally, right, and then by Mackies. So our training squadron consisted of, say, six to eight, sometimes up to ten Seahawks, uh, sorry, Skyhawks, yep. ten Mackies, and the odd Vampire or Venom prior to them going out of service. And the frontline squadron uh, for the Skyhawks was six, sometimes eight, single-seaters. So we originally acquired ten uh, Skyhawks, two A4 trainers, TA4Gs and uh, eight single-seaters and then we had a, a second purchase in the early 70s of another 10, same, same breakdown, two trainers, eight single-seaters. Now some of those were reconditioned second-hand, weren't they? They were and some of them had uh, Vietnam experience with the US Navy, yes, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, our trackers, we had an original purchase of um, 14. S2Gs, um, and they were going to last us all the way through. Once again, we had a training squadron and a, uh, a frontline squadron, seagoing squadron. So each squadron had six trackers. There were always intended to be two undergoing overhaul or maintenance right, or yep. whatever. Yep. Uh, that was the plan. And I mentioned very early that we had a hangar fire in uh, 1976, which of those original 14 aeroplanes, we'd lost one at sea. Uh, a couple of years beforehand uh, in a deck landing accident but nine of the remaining aeroplanes were destroyed in that hangar fire. Oh, no. So we had three remaining trackers. Coincidentally we'd been talking to the US Navy about supplementing our fleet anyway. Right. So several aircraft had already been chosen but a team was sent to the US to the graveyard and they said go forth and multiply. So, right. yeah. <laughs> so they came back with um, another 19 S2Gs, which was a uh, an upgraded with the anti-submarine technology, same airframe, same engine, basically, but better anti-submarine detection and um, uh, attack equipment right. in the S2Gs. So the three of the original S2Es that survived were made into hacks, okay. always, you know, yep. but the S2Gs were the the go-get them anti-submarine right. airplanes right through to '84. And uh, you have a very special tracker here, which is, I believe, almost airworthy, um, which leads us mm. neatly into the uh, historic flight side of things. Yeah. So, uh, yes, tell us a bit yeah, about the, that, um, When the trackers went out of service in 84, uh, it was decided to retain one aircraft uh, to be preserved for the RAM historic flight. Yeah. Um, the historic flight had only just been created uh, in the early 80s, 83, 84, with, with a single Dakota. Right. Uh, and then other aircraft were sort of earmarked. Um, but fortunately, somebody had the foresight to say the most recent aircraft that had come just come out of major overhaul would be the aircraft that we would retain for potential future use in the historic flight. The rest of the aircraft are offered for disposal. 
just to, just to take that out, um, so in Britain the Royal, uh, Royal Navy had their own Royal Navy historic flight which operate a, and are still operating several interesting aircraft including notably the Swordfish, probably the most famous, mm. um, but they actually had a, an ex-Australian um, firefly for, they for a, quite a while, tragically, yes. tragically lost in an accident, a fatal accident which is very sad. Um, and also in Canada, um, they have had a couple of ex-Australian fireflies there uh, operating, so uh, we've been very generous with our Commonwealth cousins there. We have, um, yes. And uh, obviously at one stage you, you still now have a, a firefly in, in the flight, although not obviously mm. airworthy at the moment. What's the situation with the flight now? The flight has had uh, an up and down career for, for its whole existence. Um, I was one of the founding members of the flight in '84, and. Uh, we acquired the C-47, which had been at the Apprentice Training School in HMAS Narimba, yep. which was formerly RAF Schofields, yep. formerly Royal Australian Naval Air Station Quakers Hill, <laughs> and so on, <laughs> and so on and so forth. Yep. Um, the Firefly had been a training aid at the Apprentice Training Establishment, which was HMAS Narimba at Quakers Hill. Um, it was one of those seven aircraft that continued on and was converted to a target towing role. Right. So the one that went to the Royal Navy historic flight, the two or three that went to Canada and other other operators, were all of those, all from that six or seven that had been converted from anti-submarine role to a target towing role, and they soldiered on until um, the mid-60s. And the particular one that's been with the historic flight since the mid-80s, uh, was one that was um, used as an apprentice's training aid at HMAS Narimba. Um, it was returned back to Nara, uh, underwent what you might call a um, major overhaul, and pressed back into service only for a very short while. Mm. You know, everybody is so excited about seeing a sea, uh, sorry, a firefly, or hearing a Griffin engine. Yeah, yeah. And we've had a very, very scant exposure to that in the time that that aircraft has been yeah. with the historic flight. Only probably a period of 18 months wow. that it actually flew in all that time, wow. uh, in all those years, um, which is unfortunate. Um, we've been pressing on with um, rebuild of the sea fury as well. Uh, a much more difficult challenge because the aircraft that was chosen was one that had been a gate guard stuck out in the weather at the front gate of the, the air station for many, many years. Right. Um, the Firefly that's on display here in the museum was its partner at the gate guard. Right. So yeah. it's, uh, it's uh, like a mud guard on a Volkswagen, shiny on top and you know <laughs> what underneath. <laughs> yes, yes, indeed. I've got a, um, a few questions about the collection. One is just how many aircraft have you got on public display here? There's about 35. Yeah, that's right? what yeah. estimated as well. Yes, um, and the Seahawk the that is currently here is the one that will stay here permanently. We had one temporarily. Um, it was the first Seahawk to go out of service because it had a, a damaged frame and because of the phasing out of the Bravo model Seahawk and the introduction of the Romeo, it wasn't considered economical to repair that aircraft. So it was given to us um, early in 2015 to okay. go on public display with the knowledge that it would be changed out for one of the Seahawks that had significant um, active service during the Gulf War and during other activities where our 
uh, Seahawks uh, ships flights have been in service um, since 1991. Right, and so that's your most recent acquisition yes. in, in the collection of aircraft, but another fairly recent one is uh, one that went across the Tasman and came back. Yes, yeah. <laughs> we could write a book about that, that, that Seahawk, uh, sorry, that Skyhawk. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mentioned that we um, originally acquired 10 Skyhawks in 1967. Two of those were trainers. Yeah. The aircraft that we have here is one of those two original uh, trainers, and in fact... The only remaining ex-Australian trainer out of the four that we had, all of the others uh, had been lost in, in crashes. Um, that aircraft was the first Skyhawk to fly in Australia. It was flown by the uh, commissioning CO of the then 805 Squadron, um, then Lieutenant Commander John De Costa, and it was the last Skyhawk to fly in Australian colours with the then Commodore, John De Costa, same person, in the back seat, and the, the then current commanding officer of 724 Squadron, Lieutenant Commander John Hamilton. So they did a masterful beat-up of the air station. <laughs> As is firmly traditional in these circumstances. Yeah, and then, yeah. they, then it went overseas to New Zealand. Then the remaining 10, out of the 20 A4s that we had, we had, at the end of their service in 84, we had 10 left, two trainers and eight uh, eight single seat is a very convenient juxtaposition considering that that's what we started with. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So the, the government um, decided that they would sell off the, um, the fixed wing element. The fighters went to New Zealand, the Mackies went back to the um, RAAF and the trackers that's another book in itself. <laughs> yes, yes. But, but the Skyhawk, look there was, a, there was an undertaking given by the Royal New Zealand Air Force at that time, even way back in the, the mid-80s, yep. that when we finish flying with these aeroplanes, guys, we'll give you one back. Right. And they, they've been true to their word, which is fabulous. Um, in the meantime, we sent a team across to the US and the US Navy loaned us uh, a single-seat A4B. At the time we acquired that, Number 2 Squadron Royal New Zealand Air Force was operating here from Nara with some of the original Navy Skyhawks anyway, and they were very supportive in helping us, uh, for all appearances' sake, make that look like a single-seat A4G Australian configuration Skyhawk. Right. hasn't got as many wing stations and it's got other differences that the plane spotter would note. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, to, the, um, to the regular punter, it... Looks like a single seat. That's, A4G. Really, that's really interesting. I didn't realise that it was the RNZF that had helped put that one on display. And, yes. And, and then, of course, the, the two seater was operating with uh, with number two squadron RNZF as well. It so. was, yeah. The, the, one of the principal roles um, of two squadron here at Nara was to train their aircraft. So they had single seaters to provide fleet support for the RAN, but they also had trainers to provide training for their own aircraft. So they had an operational flying school here. At Nara, uh, that, that was the best deal ever for for both I think New was. Zealand and the, and the Australian mm. Navy because you guys were getting the same service out of the Skyhawks and we were getting a lot yeah. more than what we would have had at home. So. Yeah, if we if we talk if we think back to what our Air Force um, colleagues had promised in 1984, yes, we will provide fleet support. Uh, we're only up the road at Williamtown and we're just getting F-18s. Uh, the um, 
the interest soon waned, <laughs> if I can put it euphemistically. Yeah, fair enough. Yes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we went, we went across the Tasman and struck a very, very um, significant deal, very beneficial deal. To both parties? For both parties, yeah. yeah. Actually, that's, that's a really, just to pick up on that point, if I understand correctly, one of the challenges with the modern, uh, modern Navy in the 70s and 80s was it was getting really expensive to operate one or two carriers. You needed to have a couple of carriers to keep one at sea, didn't you? Yes. And, and operating jets off those carriers. Um, yes, you had over the over the horizon blue water um, anti-submarine and, and air superiority options, but very, very hard for Australia to do. And basically what we decided at that stage, the government decision you touched on earlier, was that we can't afford to do this in that way. And it, the Navy became much more about the submarines and helicopters on ships with yes. the aeronautical component. Again, very similar, as I can say it one more time, like the Canadians discovered too. Mm. Um, but yeah, we, we working with New Zealand again, um, that, was a, that was a terrific uh, terrific extra. But I also realised we, when we left the, um, the historic flight, we forgot a very important component, um, which was the, uh, uh, well, can we say Huey? <laughs> yeah, yes. Um, the Huey was a latecomer to the historic flight only because um, there was an organisation within the training department on the base, which took sailors who had done their basic recruit training and then done their basic engineering training and then converted them into useful aircraft maintainers. Right. The squadrons, some of the squadrons didn't have the capacity to take on untrained people. Um, so they established this training flight and it was only because it was located in F hangar that it was called F troop. Right. Yes, <laughs> yes. You think back to your old TV yeah, shows from yeah, the sixties yeah. and seventies, um, and there were very experienced instructors, chief petty officers, petty officers, and leading seamen who took these baby sailors, and with the Huey, um, with a tracker that wasn't flying but was able to be ground run, and with access to other aircraft, these sailors were brought up to a useful standard and given a qualification that then enabled them to progress onto an operational squadron. So the UE was being maintained and flown by that unit for quite a while and then when there was no longer a need for that unit to continue, the Huey, the UH-1B, the Iroquois, uh, was then assigned to the historic flight as well. Okay. And uh, I remember well seeing it fly on the... Um, uh, the Air Force's 90th birthday uh, round the mm. various bases, which was terrific to have the Navy there for that, but even more importantly for the, um, the Navy centenary in Sydney Harbour um, in uh, 2013 when all of those other navies came to celebrate uh, the Royal yes. Australian Navy's centennial event and uh, they zimmed around that harbour. I think I said earlier, I'll repeat it again, like a, like a very fun bumper car. It was great to watch those guys having a great time. They did. They did indeed, yes. Yeah. And talking of great times... Um, You've mentioned your career a couple of points. We need to ask you about where you, where you came from and how you ended up here. Um, fill us in, please. Be before we go on to that, I'd just mm. like to pay a compliment to the Royal New Zealand Air Force and the Government of New Zealand for what they did in providing that, that two-seat A4 Skyhawk, TA4 Skyhawk to us. Um, it cost us very little in monetary terms to have that aircraft delivered to Australia, reassembled. Yeah. And, and repainted back into the configuration uh, that it's in now. Um, the RAAF provided uh, support in preparing the aircraft and, and overseeing the breaking down of the aircraft into palatable chunks that then went into a C-17. Um, C-17 delivered the aircraft here. There was a team of 
uh, ex-Royal New Zealand Air Force contractors and some Royal New Zealand Air Force personnel who came with the aircraft, and in four days, they had it back on its wheels. Wow. It was fantastic. Mm. It was fantastic. And I love the way, too, that it's back in its Royal Australian Navy colours, but there's a little tip of the hat to Number 2 Squadron, because on the tail it still has the winged tyre hard, which is very simple, yes. yeah. yeah. I, I was insistent that we pay some recognition to to the aircraft's uh, heritage in that way, yeah. Brilliant. Terrific, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Great. Um, but we're not letting you off the hook. You have to tell us about <laughs> your history here, Jack. I was a director on the, um, the foundation, the board of the foundation, through those developmental years when the museum was being established. Um, as a result of that, and as a result of the interest that I had had with the museum when it was first established back in the early 70s, um, I was able to apply for the position when Navy resumed management and ownership and control of the museum within the Naval Heritage Collection. Uh, they were wanting to appoint a, a manager and senior curator and uh, curators and other administrative positions. So I was fortunate to uh, be in the position where I was able to apply for the role and I was yep. chosen for the role and that was in uh, 2006. So the team, three of the original four team members are still here in our 10th year wow. um, having set up the Fleet Air Arm Museum again. The, uh, the mu museum was originally given that name in 74 and then for commercial reasons and operational reasons um, we changed focus. We had to try to appeal to a wider public to get people to come in and pay money at the door and to come to our air shows uh, and we had an exhibition of not just naval but other military and civil and commercial aircraft as well to try to appeal to a, a broader public, but we, um, we were able, um, during that time we were running air shows, to break every drought that NARA <laughs> had ever been subjected to. <laughs> we plan an air show three months in advance and the drought would break the night before the oh, air show. <laughs> having, having rain at an Australian air show is very unfair, isn't it? it very, is. very unfair. It is. Um, so... <clears throat> As a fiscally responsible board, we realised that uh, we weren't doing very well financially and we had to um, try and remedy that situation. So the board and, and the chairman of the board, who I must give credit to, was at that stage retired Rear Admiral Neil Ruff, who was one of the Australian naval aviators from the early 50s and yeah. went through to become the CEO of the base here and uh, Deputy Chief of Navy. Neil was instrumental in uh, making approach to the Minister for Defence and the then Chief of Navy to, to put our case to say, look, we have this facility that we have built with private subscription, with support from every other organisation within the Shoalhaven, within the local government, but with no Commonwealth mm -hmm. support whatsoever. Apart from the fact that in the mid-90s the government donated the Navy aeroplanes to the Museum Foundation. So really, in a sense, a paperwork exercise. Not yes. to take away they had done that, but it wasn't yes. a big deal. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So the approach was made. The Naval Heritage Collection, um, which consisted of a massive repository in Sydney uh, with a museum on Garden Island, was the obvious organisation within Navy for this museum to, uh, to be incorporated. So the decision was made, and then um, in August 2006... 
the staff were appointed, having been gone through a selection process, um, and we started with a clean sheet of paper. Right. Um, we we called in a design company, an industrial design company, uh, who had already had experience with the Naval Heritage Centre at right. Garden Island. They they changed a 1890s brick gun workshop into a magnificent museum on the foreshore of Sydney Harbour. So we, we called on that organisation, Spatchhurst, um, to come to Nara to look what we had and to hear about our thoughts and our desires to turn this back into the Fleet Air Arm Museum. So the name was reassigned uh, in 2006 back as the Fleet Air Arm Museum. So the chain of command went, went through the Director of Naval Heritage, through the support uh, organisation within Fleet Command and then to the Chief of Navy. So you know, we're ultimately responsible to the Chief of Navy for maintaining and exhibiting Navy's naval aviation heritage. And that's a very good example where people see the aircraft and the, and the facility you have here and think, oh, this is all very lovely and nice aeroplanes, but there's a, a lot of work goes on and a lot of negotiation and politics and, and working with people to make sure that those things can happen. Yes. Um, yeah, terrific. I've got a few more questions uh, from that list of questions, so I'm just going to put them to you. Yes, Dave. Um, just wandering around, I noticed a few things, and, and one of them is, um, and as you mentioned before, you recycle squadron names. Hmm. And one of the plaques on the wall, it talks about how um, 816 Squadron and 850 Squadron, and the squadrons that were oper operating on your post-war carriers yes. had originally been Royal Navy yes. um, squadron numbers. And I found that really fascinating, because with the Royal Air Force, only one squadron was ever allowed out of the Royal Air Force to another Air Force, and that's number 75 Squadron RNZAF, which also operated the Sky, some of the Skyhawks that came from your Navy as well. That's right, yes. And, yeah. and it, I had never heard of any Navy squadrons doing that, and I thought that was mm. really interesting. That ha, were, Was there some sort of formal release of those squadron numbers? or During, during World War II, or when we talked very early about the Royal Navy taking over the fleet air arm in, in the late 30s, just prior to World War II. Yep. And, and at that stage, squadron numbering was assigned. So squadrons with a 700 series number were considered to be training squadrons. Yep. Squadrons with an 800 series number were considered to be frontline seagoing squadrons. And to throw into that mix, during World War II, they introduced squadrons with four digits, like 1770 squadron or 1771 squadron. Right. Um, to supplement the, the massive effort that was required in those later years of World War II, um, particularly with the British Pacific Fleet. So, as I said, we were very firmly tied to Britain's apron strings anyway, so when the British government was approached to provide an aircraft carrier and to approve the sale of so many British aircraft to Australia, um, I'm sure at some stage... One of Australia's admirals said to one of the Royal Navy's admirals, and we'd like some of your squadron numbers that you're not using at the moment. <laughs> and I think that's simply how it occurred. Yeah, that's yeah. really, really interesting. Yeah. Significantly, um, one of the longest-serving RAN squadrons, 723 Squadron, was a Royal Navy squadron based here at Royal Naval Air, St Air Station Nowra during World War Two. Anyway... Right. So, so there's, a, there's a direct connection. And a heritage. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. The, the, um, the Navy, 
any navy always loves their heritage and their history, and, yes. and so to have something to tie back to is obviously it was important. Yes, rather indeed. than just starting from scratch, I guess. Yeah, but yeah. Um, another thing I noticed is uh, the Mackie doesn't seem to have any serial number. Is there any reason <laughs> for that? Um, only because of the fact that we shied away at the, the quoted price to get a sign writer to make some <laughs> adhesive labels and, and for less than that price we were able to go out and purchase our own computer controlled machine that will do vinyl cutting Right. but we're still getting qualified on the machine <laughs> so oh, in, the near, in the near future a serial will magically appear from the rear of that aircraft watch this space so, on, on that note uh, is it the vinyl cutting machine tra training scheme that has put the kangaroos backwards on the wasp? Or <laughs> <laughs> we're very that, observant, I'm afraid. That, that was the uh, sorry, it's a scout. That was the spray painter in the panel beater shop at Bombardieri. <laughs> <laughs> so you thought we wouldn't notice that because it's tucked away so that you can't see it. Uh, there are many challenges to museum curation out there. <laughs> when, when I see people walk into my museum with a black vinyl bag with a shoulder strap bulging with lead. I know <laughs> well, I don't, I don't mean to be critical, so I'll, I'll stop with the, the questions. On, on that. But we, we do have a question that we ask um, through the series of, of all of our um, interviewees who are involved with museums about Indeed. what their um, what their favourite uh, item is, or the, or the thing they think is the most important um, hmm. uh, artefact. It doesn't have to be an aircraft; it could be yes. anything. But yes. have you got anything that sticks in your mind as, as one of the most significant? Things in this most, I most certainly do, and it's a, it's a wonderful, incredible story, and we still don't know how it happened. Um, I mentioned the two gentlemen who were brought together to create the RAAF, yeah. Yeah. Dickie Williams and Stanley Gable. Stanley Gable, as I said, was Royal Naval Air Service, uh, was seconded into the RAAF, and he and Williams jumped each other throughout those mid-war years as Chief of Air Staff. Yep. They didn't get on very well, so when one was Chief of Air Staff, the other one was sent on assignment overseas somewhere. I don't think there's any secret, this, this is probably the most open secret in the, in the Australian military aviation's history, but yeah, it's good, yeah. for those not familiar with it, it's good to mention it. And um, They both achieved an awful lot, but uh, unfortunately they also wasted a lot of energy on each other, didn't they? They did, they did. And I mentioned that Stanley Gable flew Sopwiths uh, on the Western Front in France and Belgium with um, Naval 8, it was called, the Royal yep. Naval Squadron 8. Um, one of his squadron colleagues was another Australian from Melbourne whose name was Robert Alexander Little. Uh, Little did much the same as Stanley Gable did but, uh, a little bit later. Um, Little, at his father's expense, sailed to England learned to fly at Hendon, got aviator certificate number 1742 or whatever, yeah, yeah. and went knocking on the door of the, uh, the Royal Naval Air Service and they said, we'll take you. And you asked a little bit about my naval career earlier, or my career in the museum. Yeah. Little joined the Royal Naval Air Service 50 years to the day before I joined the Royal Australian oh, Navy. Yeah, so yeah. I, I have that sort of uh, you know, sympathetic connection yeah, yeah. to him as well. Um, Stanley Goebel's son, John, joined the Royal Australian Navy in 1937 yeah. as a seaman officer and was then trained as a pilot and then went on to become CO of Firefly Squadrons, 
the Commander Air of HMAS Albatross, the CR of HMAS Albatross, the CR of HMAS Melbourne. And apart from his service in the Firefly Squadrons, I served under him in nearly oh, all right. of those positions wow. Wow. as CO Albatross and CO Melbourne. Um, John thought as a um, dedication to Naval Squadron, Royal Naval Air Service Squadron 8, that the Fleet Air Army Museum volunteers should build a replica of Robert Alexander Little's Sopwith Pup. So all of these fantastic fellows, there were pilots, there were engineers, there were naval stores people, all took on a project and they'd, they'd acquired a set of original blueprints for a Sopwith Pup. Yep. So they all went home to their garages and workshops and their lounge rooms <laughs> and made bits and pieces and bought all the bits and pieces back here to build the replica of uh, Robert Alexander Little's uh, Sopwith Pup, wow. which is on display and has been on display here in the museum since the uh, early 1990s. A beautiful thing. Just to digress a little bit, the original aeroplane was found in a barn in Belgium in the 60s. It was taken to England. It was made airworthy. And they said, we'd like to fly this. And the British CAA said, never. The, uh, the RAF Museum said, but we'd get Sir Thomas Sopwith to sign this off, if you like. And he did. <laughs> and they flew it. Wow. But it's now on display at Hendon. Oh, so God. the original aeroplane, Robert Alexander Little's original aeroplane is at Hendon. We've got a replica here. Little was the highest scoring uh, Australian fighter pilot of any era, World War One, World War II. Okay. Australian-born, not, not, not in Australian service, but he yeah. was an Australian-born pilot. So there's no other pilot originating from Australia with a higher uh, tally of kills than Little. 47 wow. victories. So he's up there with the big guys. Um, My favourite object in the museum is Little's flying helmet, which was found on a garbage tip in southern Queensland in a brown leather bag three years ago. Together with his silk Royal Navy issue shirt, collarless I might add, because you wear the shirt for a week and you change the collar every day. (laughs) His black naval tie a beautiful uh, waistcoat, which I could put on and wear out tonight. It's in such fabulous condition and it fits me perfectly. (laughs) (laughs) To this day, we don't know why or how that brown leather Gladstone bag with Little's memorabilia inside it finished up on a garbage tip in Queensland. But but what's wonderful, absolutely, I remember that story which we covered in Flight Path magazine Mm. with, uh, with... Well, excitement and incredulity, as you'd expect. Yes. It's terrific, firstly, that it was saved. And the other terrific thing about it is that you knew what it was once you had it, or the gentleman, you know, once it was found, because you had the details in there, which is often yes. the case that you'll have mm. grandfather's papers and, and uniform and stuff, but there's often no names or, or right. trademark. Yeah. And, of course, to have such a significant person, sadly, not as well known. I'm, I think you just done a great job there, uh, Terry, sort of filling in some people who haven't heard of him before now know who he is and can mm. go and do a bit of more research, perhaps. Um, and a very important Australian aviator. And what a what a great note to sort of wind up this terrific uh, terrific interview. Absolutely. With. And and I mean, what a great um, item to pick for your for your favourite as well. And I think it's just wonderful that that person that who went to the to the dump um, was curious enough to look in that bag and, indeed, and find indeed. it. Yes. Yeah. yeah he was. He, he opened the bag at the dump and there was a, a tweed coat at the top of the bag with a rat's nest in it. So he threw the coat away 
and he, he saw the helmet, which he thought was just a motorbike helmet. He yeah. closed the bag up again, and he had it at home for six months before he even went back into it Wow! to look at it. So close to losing everything. Yeah, and yeah. then he opened up the inside of the helmet, and there was Little's name, Little's address in Melbourne, and the motto in Latin of Scots College, the school that Little attended. So there was no doubt about the provenance of those items. Which is gold, because one of the big frustrations with museums is you get stuff that probably or could be or may be, but you can't prove it. Whereas in this case, you're absolutely happy that... It's it's just an incredible story because when he was inspecting, he finally realised what it was. When he was inspecting the helmet, it had a little fold-up peak at the front which clipped with a press stud. And he was fooling that and found something rigid inside that fold-up peak. Being inquisitive, he said, what on earth is this? And he was a farmer, so he had a vet in town who had an x-ray machine. And they x-rayed the peak of the cap, and there was something round, solid and round in there. So the vet then got had his scalpel and cut three or four pieces of stitching uh, in the peak and extracted a folded-up photograph which was Little Sun, wrapped around a gold sovereign. Wow. And we have those in the collection as well. Wow. And on the back of the photograph is written in his wife's handwriting, with love, Vera. Brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. It is terrific stuff. Well, thank you very much, Terry. It's been an absolute pleasure to uh, have a chat with you about the the museum here. And I hope that a lot of people um, listening to this will make the effort to come along. It's certainly one of the great museums of Australia that I've been to. And um, Just tell people how they can uh, find you and, and uh, get in touch. The Fleet Air Arm Museum is um, situated in Nara on the south coast of New South Wales. It's uh, about a two and a half hour drive from Sydney. Yep. We're located immediately outside the front gate of the Royal Naval Air Station, HMAS Albatross. Well, Australian Naval Air Station, sorry. <laughs> Freudian slip now, there. Absolutely, but very definitely Australian now. Yeah, yes, yes. Um, we are open seven days a week um, from 10 till 4. We have a website which is linked to the Navy website, so if anybody wants to go www.navy.gov.au, they'll find a history link, go into that, and you'll find a, a link to the, uh, to the several museums which are part of the Naval Heritage Collection. Fantastic. Well, thanks again. Thank you. Cheers. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
brave is cavalry. High over the ocean, flying wide and free. The soldiers, sailors, and marines are demons at pinching all the scenes, opposing in the magazines. But with the Navy's eyes, the admiral's fireflies were high sky riding aeronautical guys. Wings over the Navy. Seven sky.